Hey everyone, welcome back to Creating a Vegan World. Today we have a very special guest and she's working in her local community to ban horse-drawn carriages where I feel this is a great topic because a lot of times we face negative problems with the local media and how to make changes at the local level. A lot of people don't focus on that where people want to start plant-based protein companies or battle factory farming when they're a vegan activist, which are all great things. But if we think about this, we're in this world together and there's so many local issues that are near and dear to our hearts. And if enough of us focus on these things that are local, this is how we create a vegan world faster. So thank you for joining us. Do you wanna give us a quick introduction about who you are, what your background is, and why you decided to focus on banning horse-drawn carriages in your area? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, thanks for having me on. We always appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, the activism that we're doing. So my name is Liz and I've been, um, I've been vegan since about 2008 nine. Um, and actually, even before I was vegan myself, I started uh, doing animal activism. Uh, through my uh, university, there were some opportunities to get involved in different animal rights campaigns. I live in, in Ontario, Canada. And uh, in the, air, the specific area where I live, there's a lot of, um, unfortunately, uh, animals used for entertainment purposes. I'm in the Niagara region, so uh, very close to Niagara Falls, and maybe some of your viewers are familiar with uh, Marineland, which is a marine captivity park uh, in Niagara Falls. That was actually one of the first places that I went uh, for my first demonstration. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure some of you are aware of the incredibly horrible conditions for uh, the whales, the dolphins, um, they even have bears and deer at that park and they're just horrendous uh, welfare conditions for those animals in addition to just being um, locked up in captivity. And thankfully the tide is turning and more and more people are turning against uh, zoos and marine mammal facilities, so that's great. Uh, that's kind of where I got started and then I, I just it grew from there I started protesting at um, when the circus would come to town traveling circuses traveling rodeos. Um, when I was in university I was very active in um, a group that I started uh, that it, I went to Brock University and we had a group called Brock Students for Animal Liberation and we uh, raised a lot of awareness on uh, vivisection because obviously that's a uh, a major contributor of animal exploitation in higher education. That's where a lot of the funding comes into universities is through um, research on animals. And um, that was uh, a big part of our advocacy, um, raising awareness on vivisection. Um, and then it kind of just went from there. I, you know, I regularly partake in fur campaigns or anti-fur campaigns. Um, and uh, somewhat recently, I got more actively involved in a campaign to ban the horse-drawn carriage rides. And that's primarily what I'll be talking about today because I am one of the, the organizers uh, currently uh, in this campaign. And it has been very, very fruitful. <laughs> there's been lots of updates and um, there's been lots of work that we've been doing that has been successful, but it's also been pretty controversial. Um, so yeah. Definitely. I think that's one of the reasons why I want an interview on this channel, because there's a lot of things you face with the local media where they paint a terrible picture of activists saying they're extremists. We're just talking about this before we hit the record button for this interview. If there's messages for local activists, like 
what struggles do they face with the local media and other struggles in the area that might paint the movement in a bad picture? Yeah, and so when I started with um, protesting the carriages, uh, there was a, a group that was um, kind of starting the conversation on this issue. Uh, in the Niagara region, you know, of course we have marine land, like I mentioned, there's also um, in surrounding areas, we have African lion safari, zoos. Um, we also have the Greg Fruin Theater, which has live tigers in their show. Um, so there's, there's many opportunities for people to be outraged at um, animals used for entertainment purposes. And a lot of them include wild animals. So generally, I think public opinion has largely agreed at this point that using wild animals in zoos and in circuses and things like that is, is no longer deemed acceptable in the eyes of the public, which is great. Um, but what I found is something like horse-drawn carriage rides. Um, I find that it's not often talked about um, within the, the vegan community uh, as much. Uh, although it is widely uh, condemned by the general public, and I'll talk more about this in, in terms of the kind of advocacy we do. We do a lot of out street outreach, and we talk to a lot of tourists that visit the area. And most people are, actually, are, are against horse-drawn carriage rides. But I, generally speaking, up until very recently, I, I think that talking about equines, horses, um, horse exploitation has kind of fallen under the radar. Um, there's just there's less discussion about horse exploitation. I think it's because it's so ingrained in societal attitudes about that horses like should earn their keep. Uh, horses have been working for, you know, thousands of years for us, like they are built for this kind of labor. So there's a general attitude in society that, you know, horses are kind of here for us to use, whether that be for horseback riding, for, you know, plowing fields um, that, you know, I'll sometimes hear from, people that, you know, horses built this country, whatever that's supposed to mean, um, that, and that they fought in wars for us. So I, I just feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding. So when the, the campaign to start uh, raising awareness on horse-drawn carriage rides, it started in November, 2017. Uh, and there was a group called At War for Animals Niagara that started organizing these demonstrations of which I took part um, when I could. And then that group actually, publicly announced in January 2020 that they would no longer be formally organizing the protest. So at that point, it was kind of left open for really any concerned citizen to step up and continue protesting. So myself and a few others have consistently organized demonstrations there since. And we've had a very active 2020 and 2021 and have made strides in the campaign. And um, it's uh, it's been it's been great, but it, it has presented a lot of challenges as well. So I know you were mentioning about the local media. Um, so generally speaking, like we're in the Niagara region, um, there is a generally overall fairly conservative attitude uh, when it comes to um, some of these more like topics that are, I guess, we have traditional views on overall. So messages around animal liberation aren't widely accepted in the area that I live. Although it is a university town, so we've got some more progressive ideas up and coming. And you know, there are some segments of this area that um, are, are, are more social justice oriented. However, our local media is generally speaking 
pretty um, resistant to these kinds of topics and overall fairly biased um, with our messaging. And that's been uh, a challenge, but at the same time, we really appreciate any opportunity where we can speak to this issue. So we will go on pretty much anywhere we're invited. Uh, it doesn't always work out in terms of the framing of the piece and, and what, we're, what we're talking about. We're oftentimes finding that the, uh, our messages, you know, not really met with any kind of legitimate um, interest. It's more just, you know, we say our piece and then they tend to try to brush it off and then go towards more um, areas where they can try and smear uh, animal rights activists in general, which I'm sure you and your viewers are familiar with. Uh, oftentimes mm -hmm. media will just kind of lump all of animal rights activists under like, you know, PETA or those PETA people um, and just kind of swiftly remove any kind of critical discussions on an issue. So this is the kind of thing that we're finding. <laughs> um, so it's it's been difficult, but this is why it's great to get on channels like yours so that we can actually talk about the issue in a, in a way that you know allows us the opportunity to speak more freely and maybe not be so characterized by negative bias. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, yeah. an activist here in Australia, some living in Northern Beaches, Sydney, where on the news she was pretty much speaking about her activism and she does things that grab attention. And just the news interviewer just obviously had the bias against like the extreme activist. And it's amazing to be able to like have the courage to be up there and like face that criticism and still stand true to what you're going for. So I admire that. Yeah. And I know for, for myself, like I have the personality where I work in vegan marketing where it's more about catering to the needs of the market and like being accepting, like creating these products and it doesn't face that type of backlash as activism. So a lot of courage yeah. there. Then um, I guess I like to strategize on the channel because a lot of people might be watching this where they might want to ban horse-drawn carriages in Europe, or they might have another local thing. I have friends starting a nonprofit in Colorado that's focusing on a different issue. Like when it comes to getting that, I guess, public perception or even getting in the media, working with the media or getting your message out there, what, I guess, lessons are learned or like if you could go back in your past, what could you have done differently to be more effective to getting the message across? Like what works? Yeah, well, when you know that you, if you have a, you know, a, a local media that is not very receptive, you kind of need to take charge of that right off the bat. So we uh, actively have sought opportunities to, you know, create our own conversations through social media. This is so important. Um, to be able to get um, the accurate messaging out. So, you know, we're on all the, the relevant platforms. Um, I really recommend that, you know, if you're not already on Facebook and Instagram, which, you know, pretty much most people of our generation are, um, look into uh, other platforms where you may be able to get even more views. Places like TikTok are extremely effective if you're an animal activist because people don't have to be following you in order to see your content. And these are kinds of the places where you can really raise awareness on an issue that may not be talked about as much. So even in when we're doing street outreach and we're talking about the, the cruelty and the inherent exploitation around horse-drawn carriage rides, the general public, which are largely tourists to Niagara on the lake, this is where the horse-drawn carriage rides operate in our, in our region. Um, we have people visit from all over the world to the Niagara region because of Niagara Falls primarily, but Niagara on the Lake is not too far. And 
people do agree uh, with our message and it's just, you know, trying to find the, the opportunity to discuss these issues in a way that's not, um, you know, actively being smeared by what we would call like our opposition, which are the equestrian um, crowd or people that are, uh, defend the use of horse-drawn carriage rides for because it's tradition it's romantic it's always been here you know um we have a very active opposition in our community that is trying to um really uh make our message flounder <laughs> um but they're not very you know they try their best but what they do is they smear um the actions and intentions of animal rights activists. And they'll actually like, they'll actively make up lies and start perpetuating these kind of lies online. And so it's so important for activists that are tackling an issue, whether it be something more general like vegan outreach, or if you're trying to do a goal that is very winnable, like something like banning horse-drawn carriage rides is very winnable. It's already been banned in over 35 cities around the world. But when you have something like this, where you know that your your opposition is scared, that's really all they have is to smear and to lie. They don't really have active arguments against the issue because if they did, you know, they know they would it, it wouldn't it would flounder essentially um, because they, they don't have a good argument. So uh, we, we, it's so important if you're an activist to make sure that you are actively creating opportunities for yourself to raise awareness on social media, make videos, um, and also film everything. Um, you want to get, um, uh, you know, video testimonials from more, I guess, like average people on why they also disagree with it. So they can't, so the media or any kind of opposition that you're working with can't just try to pigeonhole you into one area that this is just a very extreme and radical animal rights or animal liberation view. Um, you kind of need to take the opportunity to meet people where they're at and try to um, listen to people, listen to individuals. Um, and even if you don't 100% agree with them, maybe they're somewhat thinking about um, the use of horses. Like we get lots of people on the street that are against horse-drawn carriage rides, but they are for horseback riding. And they'll say, you know, like, I love horses. Like I, I, I've ridden horses my whole life or I love horses. I go to the racetrack all the time, but yeah, these horses out in the street, it's terrible. So of course I have disagreements with that kind of viewpoint, but I really try to meet these people like where they're at currently, and then maybe leave some opportunities for them to think about the use of horses and animals overall in the future and building those alliances and coalitions and um, allowing people the opportunity to get involved by, you know, signing petitions and petitioning local government, sending emails. Um, this is, this allows you to have a campaign that is winnable because it's not going to be winnable if you're just in your own echo chamber of people that already agree with you. Absolutely. And there's always a spectrum where like we're on this side and then the pro horse carriage, like the question community, like you said, is probably all the way over here where some people in this area might not be reachable, but there's plenty of people in the middle. And it seems like you said getting their video testimonials and showing yeah. that a significant portion of the population that'll help. Does, um, yeah. That kind of leads in you kind of alluded to like, how do you actually change the, the laws in the local community? You said there's like email and government, 
like officials? Is there like meeting with them in person, sending them these videos? How do you make the actual legal change? Yeah, so with our campaign in particular, we have several goals when we when we advocate for these horses and um, really embracing a diversity of tactics for activists is so important. You don't wanna be predictable. Uh, you don't wanna always do what, you know, the your opposition may expect or what the what your politicians expect you to do um you want to kind of hit uh this issue from all angles so we when we're doing street outreach um we are primarily talking to or raising awareness about the issue of horse-drawn carriages with people in the streets but we're also there to cause a ruckus in in this town and that means, you know, kind of disrupting the, the everyday activities of that town. So if, if any of your viewers are familiar with Niagara-on-the-Lake, uh, they'll know that it's a very um, conservative town. They've got a very colonial heritage that they're extremely proud of, and they are resistant to any kind of progressive change. They're also a very quiet and quaint town, so it's very, it's very cute. They've got a lot of, like, cute little shops and... Um, you know, it, it's it's beautiful, like to go walk around in. But uh, this just makes it all the more frustrating for the the town council um, when they have activists show up because this is not something. There's never really been activists, to my knowledge, in that town before the horse-drawn carriages. People people there are extremely privileged and oft, often upper class. Um, so when you're of that category of of people you don't really have anything to worry about because you're extremely privileged yourself. So they're not thinking about social justice issues. So when people come in there and start to raise an issue, uh, they just see you as a nuisance. And we're fine with that. Um, if anything, we know that we're not gonna change the minds of some of these um, local people that are completely resistant to any kind of dis critical discussion about horse-drawn carriage rides. But just by being in that town, whether we protest silently and just hold signs and you know talk with passersby, or whether we engage in some chanting, um, if we walk around the town and do some some chants, or if we use megaphones or um, do any kind of disruption uh, to any kind of event that's already taking place there, these are all things that really um, perturb the town council because they don't want anything ruining their very quaint reputation. Um, so I would say to your viewers, you know, like, depending on what kind of area that you live in, if you're in a bigger city, I think, you know, local politicians, um, local elected government, they may not be as moved by a regular demonstration. But if you're in a smaller town, like we are demonstrating in, holding those street actions makes a huge impact because ultimately, at the end of the day, their local government it's not good for their image. It's not good for their brand. It's not good for their reputation to have activists in town. And so what we have done, we've kind of capitalized on that um, because if they're not gonna look at the issue of horse-drawn carriages, we've tried to raise it to them and talk about the issues, the welfare issues, the rights issues. Um, and unfortunately it's fallen on ears that don't wanna listen. Uh, they have no interest in coming to talk to us um, and try to gain our perspective and why we might be protesting in their town. Rather, they have just completely sworn us off from the beginning. 
and they are not, they just call us the protesters. They don't even call us horse-drawn carriage protesters or animal rights activists. We're just known as the protesters because we're really the only protesters that have ever hit that town. But I, I am a firm believer in doing this campaign and organizing this campaign for the last two years that you want to hit um, local politicians in any way that they're going to listen. So if they're not going to listen to you in regards to the issue itself, then they're going to listen or they're at least paying attention if you disrupt disrupt their uh, daily goings and daily activities. All at the end of the day, the only thing they're concerned with is preserving their reputation. So if you can cause some kind of disruption, um, you are already winning. So, and I'm sure you've seen this uh, with the uh, movement to uh, ban fur in major retailers. Uh, there's been a domino effect of fur retailers now dropping fur because of the actions of animal rights activists going in and disrupting inside stores. Um, and although a tactic like that may not sway people on an individual level, like if you were shopping in a store and you were thinking about buying maybe a fur trim, and then you see some crazy animal rights activists come in, you yourself may not be moved by the anti-fur message that they're delivering, but you can sure as hell be convinced that the people at the top of that company um, are concerned about animal rights activists coming in and disrupting their stores um, business as usual. So I definitely support a diversity of tactics when it comes to animal rights activism, because if you only try to go at it from one direction, it's not going to be successful. You definitely want to, um, like we said earlier, have conversations with people, try to meet them where they're at, engage in civil dialogue and respectful dialogue with individuals. But when it comes to um, politicians or owners of big companies, um, I think you know you need to approach um, through other tactics that are a little bit that, that pressure them more. So whether that be, you know, through like disruptions in stores or disruptions in the downtown core, um, our local uh, elected officials, they've acti actively tried to remove us from our ability to protest in Niagara and the Lake. Uh, in some of their town council meetings, they've actually suggested that they find a protest zone where they could move us away from the downtown core and away from the horse carriages so that we still have our right to protest, but just not in the area that we are protesting. So in the middle of a field somewhere where nobody could listen to you, that's your protest. Pretty much. Wow. Which is preposterous for anybody that believes in <clears throat> democracy. You know, mm -hmm. we live in Canada, we have this thing called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the freedom of assembly and, you know, um, this is something that the town council either is completely ignorant about or they just don't want to acknowledge. So they say, yeah, you can have your rights, but with conditions. It's like, no, if, we're our, if we are in a downtown space, which is public property, there's no way that they can remove us from our ability to protest. And that frightens them, that really scares them. We've had the, the mayor of Niagara-on-the-Lake uh, admit in one of their, their public meetings that is open for the public to see, and they hold these meetings once a month, um, back in November, I believe, 2020, they had a discussion about our activism. And she said that she was truly at a loss because she didn't know how to deal with us. And she is getting pressure from her constituents to get rid of us. But of course, she, she has no ability to get rid of us. 
she kind of, you know, it, it was her error from the beginning to not step up and say, you know what, I don't agree with their message, but they do have the right to protest. I can't get rid of them. Maybe we should consider a discussion about what's more important. Is it more important for us to preserve this carriage company? Because they really have loyalty to one carriage company in particular. Mm-hmm. Is, is this more important or is it more important that um, we may entertain the thought that it should be banned? It's been banned already in 35 cities and municipalities worldwide. Um, so when it comes to uh, pressuring politicians, definitely go at them from that route, make them uncomfortable, make them address the issue. When it comes to, so this is the town council, which I'm referring to, but we also have a regional council and they're actually the government in our area that issue the licenses for these horse-drawn carriages to operate. So we also, uh, we have a petition now uh, that's garnered roughly 20,000 signatures uh, and it was launched in March. So just in a matter of a few months, we already have 20,000 signatures to ban the carriages. At the end of this year, we're gonna present that to the region in addition to, like I mentioned before, um, testimonials from people that are visiting um, that they don't like to see the carriages because really horse-run carriage rides exist for tourists. Um, they're there as a, a tourist trap. They're there to generate money from people just walking by on the streets. Um, but if, if tourists largely disagree with it, if the, if the region was responsible, they would entertain the thought of having a productive discussion about whether it is worth having horse-drawn carriage rides in the 21st century. Definitely. Some great points. And are there alternatives? I might have misread the article. It's, I don't want to read while in the middle of the interview, but something about like electric buggies or electric carriages, is there like, I know some, like it's part of, I guess, the culture there, like you said, it's been going on so long. And to, re- to remove it, that might face more resistance versus being seen as like the new, like eco-friendly electric buggy type of thing being on the cutting end. Is there is there ways yeah. to like swap that out that you feel might be effective? It has already been uh, swapped in other cities around the world. So uh, just last year, Mumbai, India, just uh, introduced their first round of electric carriages for tourism, um, as well as Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. And Guadalajara, Mexico, I believe they instituted them, I think it was 2017 or 2018. And it's been very successful. Other cities in Mexico that have already banned the horse carriages are now looking to get funding to replace them with electric. So uh, it's certainly doable in our area. And really for anybody that's watching that uh, may want to protest horse carriages in their own city, um, this is certainly a viable option. Um, it, It really is like, it is the future. It's not going anywhere. And the future is now. It is already being implemented in these cities. So we just need to make politicians aware that this is not going away and it you know overall it is more cost effective it's a humane alternative you can still allow these carriage drivers to have a business uh it just doesn't involve exploiting an animal uh, and forcing them into these dangerous and exploitative conditions for several hours a day in any temperature these horses are, and I can talk about some of the issues with horse-drawn carriages after if you'd like, but Mm -hmm. uh, there really is no um, reasonable, like reason not to go towards electric or even pedal or bike taxis. There's so many other ways that they could generate um, profits and tourism without using an animal. In 2021, 
it's it's really not fruitful at all to have horse-drawn carriage rides. Most people disagree with them. So I, I really think that our, our region just had never thought about it before, but now they're forced to think about it because of the protests that have been happening. Absolutely, it's a great way to get awareness. And you, what you said reminded me, or a conversation reminded me of, I spoke with a Geraldine Stark from ReFarmed on this channel where she's transforming dairy farms into plant-based milk production facilities. Yeah. So instead of like tearing down the system, it's kind of like swapping it out. So that's why I was really excited to read about the the electric carriage solution, because in that case, yeah. everybody could win, where obviously the horses win, us as the activists, we fulfill our goal, and then the companies and the city, they still get what they want. So nobody loses. And I love solutions. Exactly. Like that. And when it, yeah, like when it comes to the dairy farm swap, you know, like it's never an activist or an animal rights uh, person's goal to put someone out of out of business or, you know, make it so that they're, they no longer have a way to make a living. The, the motivation of an animal liberation activist is always, you know, to let's consider the, the rights of that animal, the, the animal that's been exploited for, you know, decades. Um, so we just need to move towards progress, right? We need to innovate. And we're in 2021, we're, you know, we're in a climate emergency right now. There's, and so much of that is tied to our globalized capitalist exploitation of animals on a worldwide scale. So if we don't innovate, you know, we're, this is, this is harmful to us at the end of the day too, not just the animals. So of course we want uh, carriage companies to still have a way for them to make money. Um, and have a living and there's really no reason not to <laughs> like i i'm i'm just still astounded when we get resistance from our local politicians and if we don't get resistance then we're just completely ignored so that's another challenge that we face is even just allowing or having them even respond to us i think they've tried to you know, rationalize that something like this is not that important um, in the grand scheme of things. But I mean, you could really say that about many issues. Politicians often don't want to address um, many issues that are raised in their community, uh, or they don't want to touch anything that's controversial. And something like horse carriage rides is, is very controversial, at least in the area that we live in, because uh, we, we are in a community where there's a lot of farming and um, a lot of you know, more traditional, traditional views, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So uh, rather than them even give an opinion, we, we've actively tried to ask our regional council what they even think about horse carriage rides. And most of them have not even answered us. So we, we don't let them get away with that though. Um, we are their constituents and we deserve an answer. So we do continue to pressure them through emails, telephone calls, um, we have this petition. We're, we're gonna keep fighting it until, you know, until they ban it. So probably the, the quicker that they start the conversation, the better for them. Uh, because I know that in the eyes of, of uh, in their eyes, they, they don't wanna deal with anything um, that ruins the reputation of the town, so. If they know that we will not stop, that'll be the extra drive. Like, okay, let's, let's do something about it. So once they realize that, yeah. I think that'll help. Then uh, two more questions I just wanna to touch base on. So. Number one, I guess, obviously it comes down to the animals, the horses, where um, just last year I was in the, I guess, 
it's like wine country in Australia. It's Hunter Valley. And they had a horse-drawn carriage there as kind of like a touristy thing, just like where you are. Like a lot of people, when they see that, just so ingrained in society. It's not like registered as anything like bad. So just for people yeah. listening to this who might not be aware of that, might be like oblivious to it. Like, can you describe like, like what's like being inside the eyes of the animal and like why, like. Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that because I think there is some misunderstanding about horse-drawn carriage rides. And to be honest, uh, my whole life, you know, I've, I've loved animals and I've, you know, thought that I was, even as an adult, like pretty critical about the use of animals. But when it came to horse carriage rides, it didn't even enter my thought um, up until a few years ago. And I, I'm kind of ashamed to say that because, but like you mentioned, it is kind of something that is, it's just always been there and you don't even really think about it. But when we do our demonstrations now and we hold our signs that, you know, kind of speak to what the horse may be feeling, I think something clicks in people. It's like, actually, yeah, I agree with you. Or, oh yeah, I, uh, you know, I always feel bad for these horses, but I've never said anything because it's just, you know, it's, it's always been there and it's just so normalized in our culture. So some of the issues with horse-drawn carriage rides um, from a welfare point of view, like, the, the basically the experience of the horse, um, they are tethered to a very short rope um, on pavement. Uh, their movement and their autonomy is severely restricted. They stand stationary on asphalt for several hours at a time. And uh, oftentimes they're there for hours while the carriage driver waits, awaits uh, a fare to be purchased. So a lot of these horses lives just involves kind of standing still in one place. And because horses are herd animals, uh, they thrive in stable social units um, and in pastures, in green pastures. So they really do need access uh, to graze throughout the day in order to, one, be healthy, but, uh, but also they need to have interactions with members of their own species. And carriage horses are denied this when they are carted out into an urban space um, to stand around on a pavement. Um, so that's one point. Uh, when a fare is purchased, they have to pull, obviously, these heavy carriages and um, some, depending on the municipality, there's not always um, any kind of regulations on the industry. So in terms of like how much the, the carriage weighs and how many people are allowed on it, of course, it could be like a few hundred pounds. It could be over a thousand pounds that these horses need to drag around um, for anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour, or hour and a half. Um, per ride. Um, so they're in vehicular traffic. So of course they're at constant risk of um, chronic respiratory ailments. They have to breathe in car exhaust and fumes, their nose to tailpipe. Um, they're, when they're on pavement, they have a lot of uh, joint issues. They're at increased risk of lameness, early onset lameness, um, muscul musculoskeletal injuries, and um, even being in uh, an urban environment, it's very stressful for them. And this, the carriage horses that are, are at an increased risk of gastric ulcers, um, other stress-related health problems as well. And of course, like I mentioned, not, there's not always regulations on temperature. So in Niagara region, uh, to my knowledge, there's no regulations on the temperature under which a horse carriage can operate. You, you'll see in uh, New York City, um, where there's a very big campaign to get the carriage horses banned. 
that I don't think they can have the horses out, I think anywhere from like 90 to 92 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but, and that's the equivalent of, I believe, anywhere from like 30 to 35 degrees Celsius where we live in, in Canada. And that's, that's how we measure temperature in Celsius. And we've seen uh, carriage horses out there in 35 degrees plus uh, humidity. It's very humid where we live. So it, it makes the, the air even harder to breathe. Um, and there's no regulations. So these horses are out in active heat waves. We've seen them out there many times. Basically, if the carriage company thinks they can turn a profit and if there's people walking around, they're gonna have the horses out. Um, and it's only up to their personal discretion whether they would like to pull the, the horses or not. So it really shouldn't be up to a specific company to decide how hot it is for the horses. There should be legislation that, that determines that. Um, so we also see them out in rainstorms and blizzards. Uh, if you look at videos of carriage horses around the world, a lot of them suffer from heat prostration. Uh, the, when they're on asphalt, um, the heat radiates off the black asphalt onto their belly. And this can increase their internal body temperature much higher than than uh, what we even experience when we're out there. So oftentimes uh, carriage horses around the world will collapse in the street and die. Um, uh, of course, there's also um, several accidents related to vehicular traffic. So uh, carriage horses are always put at risk when they are in urban spaces with lots of noise. Horses are prey animals, so they spook extremely easily and something that we may not even think is a big deal can really frighten a horse. And there's these just horrible um, videos around the world where horses take off into traffic and just crash into people on the streets, passersby, vehicles, buildings. And um, if a horse or gets injured, oftentimes it's fatal for them. Even something as simple, seemingly simple as a, a leg injury or a foot injury can be fatal for a horse. Um, uh, of course, they are also um, tethered to uncomfortable mechanisms that um, force them into submission. Things like bits, whips, and blinders, they're all used um, as part of the training process to make sure that the horse is subservient to the carriage driver. Uh, so they go through a process where the horse is, they, they call the term breaking in a horse or breaking a horse. So much like a, a circus elephant, for example, where uh, trainers will use bull hooks or threaten the use of a bull hook and hit the elephant in the very sensitive areas of their body in order for them to comply and do tricks. Uh, it's similar with, with horses um, through the use of horse tack, things like girths, um, whips, and um, bits that they have in their mouths. These are extremely uncomfortable. Uh, it, they hit the very sensitive areas of their jaw and the nerve endings. And um, when, you, when you pull a horse on the reins, this will uh, spur the, the bit to hit these very sensitive areas. So um, when a carriage horse doesn't comply, that's when they're, and same with horseback riding, uh, that's what they're gonna experience. So these horses, they know that if they don't comply, uh, they're gonna experience some physical pain. So they don't have a choice. They don't have a choice to be out there. They're out there because we force them out there and it's not like they can run away. <laughs> where, where are they gonna go? Um, they're domesticated and they're our property, right? So th they're ours to use and exploit. Um, so like uh, on top of course, all the welfare conditions, which for the horse, if you look into a horse's eyes, 
on the streets, you can see that they're uncomfortable. You can see that they're in distress. Like you don't have to be any kind of equine expert to see that this is morally wrong. Um, but on a more fundamental level, horses like any other animal don't exist for humans. Horses have existed for millions of years before humans, and they have existed independently and out in the wild without any kind of interference and without us using them for our own benefit. So why in the 21st century are we allowing horse-drawn carriage rides to exist purely for frivolous entertainment? It's, it, you couldn't even justify it from the point of view that, well, we need horses to pull carriages because we don't have transportation. Of course, horse carriage rides don't exist as an alternative to transportation, right? Or an alternative to cars. Perhaps unless you're in a, an Amish community or a Mennonite community. And that's not where we're protesting. We are protesting the use of horse-drawn carriage rides for tourism, for entertainment purposes. And this is something that just doesn't need to exist in the 21st century, especially when we have these alternatives. So these are just some of the, the main reasons why uh, we're very passionate to make this you know, an issue that people care about, because of course we love animals, we love horses. Um, I've you know, had a lot of experience with horses in my life. I did horseback riding as a kid. I know the industry um, and it's, it's just something that I think not a lot of people think about. So we hope that through our activism, we are changing hearts and minds and we're starting the conversation to you know, change the tide of public opinion because you can't make change and you can't get these bans if the public isn't on your side. So we're gonna continue advocating as long as it takes till we see that shift and we see our elected officials start to see it as an issue if they care about animals at all, right? Well, thanks for sharing that where sometimes like you see it, but you don't really see it. So thanks for explaining that. I guess one thing yeah. just to wrap up and read, there's a lot of people that might be inspired to do activism for horse-run carriages or even like Cubes of Truth where I know like you said there's a lot of backlash. There's attacks on you. And I, know, I was doing a cube of truth. People are walking by laughing. Like it takes confidence. It takes something like, how do you deal with that? Like emotionally or mentally, or even dealing with what people say about you and building the confidence. Do you have any tips for that? That's a good, yeah, that's a good question. I think in online culture in particular mm -hmm. too, there's so much mudslinging back and forth, even within vegan circles. There's so much disagreement like about strategies and tactics, and it oftentimes leads into people kind of personally attacking one another. So if we are fighting even within our own community, of course there's gonna be fighting between, you know, uh, between sides. So in terms of like strategies to kind of, you know, remain calm and, and not get too emotionally triggered, this is something that like, I feel, you know, affects us all at some point. There's going to be people that are, you know, going to mock you in the street or, or try to shake you up and try to film you um, acting irate or something that they can use and manipulate to discredit your whole movement. So what I found has worked for, for me and, and others is really not to engage anybody that um, you know is not arguing in good faith. So of course we get some people on the streets that legitimately don't understand the issue. And you can tell you know, that they're asking questions because they really don't know why we're doing this. They think there's nothing wrong with it, but they're curious what we're about. And of course we want to engage with those people. But when you have people uh, that actively come up to you and start mocking you and you know, um, 
maybe start like hurling insults. Um, and if they're trying to film you and get your reaction, my, my advice would be to just completely ignore them. Um, if they're filming you and they're, they're being rude, just don't say anything. Uh, if they are um, asking you questions that you don't feel like are in good faith, um, I think you can politely say, you know, we're, we're at an impasse and, you know, this is my view. And if you don't agree, that's fine, but you can walk away. I have nothing more to add. There's no point in really exerting too much energy into people that you know their mind, minds are going to be changed. Because um, you really, like, as activists, we have a finite amount of energy ourselves. And we need to know where our energy is, is focused more effectively. And I think, think a lot of activists burn out really fast if they engage in too much of that drama. Um, so really try to disengage from, from that and just always remind yourself like what you're there to do. So for us, we're there to advocate for the, for the horses. They are our number one priority at all times. And if you find that some people are trying to get in your way of doing that, don't even, don't even engage. Don't go anywhere near the carriage drivers if they are, um, if they are trying to, you know, maybe like manipulate a situation. We've actually had a recent situation where a carriage driver tried to insinuate that one of our peaceful activists um, touched her or assaulted her. Meanwhile, that, that carriage employee actively walked up to that activist, brushed along the side of her body, and then claimed that the activist was touching her. So carriage drivers can be extremely um, aggressive and manipulative and they they try to paint you the peaceful activist as the aggressor when in fact it is them and in our community we've actually just in the last year alone there's been six charges five of them which have been physical assaults that have been um, laid against the the pro horse carriage movement um, and that we've had zero charges against animal activists because we do protest peacefully and we know that our opposition is aggressive. So just know your boundaries. If you're uncomfortable in any kind of drama or any kind of situation where you might be put more at risk, just stay removed from those people and um, do what you need to do to be, be comfortable. Some activists are more uh, comfortable with those confrontation or, or at least putting themselves out there to be at risk of confrontation and others are more comfortable just peacefully holding a sign. So know what your strengths are and know what your weaknesses are because you don't want to get triggered in a public space where people are filming you because it will be used against you and manipulated. And uh, this, this was seen in, in some of the media that covers our, our demonstrations. But we always wear a body camera. And that's one other thing I'll, I'll leave you with. Um, if, if your activists are in a hostile area where they're demonstrating, uh, it's very important. And I think it's, it's worthwhile to invest in a body camera um, this is what has led to the charges that have been laid against uh, the people that have assaulted activists because of our video footage that has proved what has actually happened. Otherwise, it's kind of your word versus theirs. So for your own safety and protection, I would invest in a body camera for sure. And um, yeah, and stay safe out there. <laughs> Definitely. And I think like the power of community where like when I was doing the Cube to Truth was out of my comfort zone. Like, like I said, I mainly do vegan marketing and businesses, but going to Cube to Truth, it's like, going up and knowing what to say and just like it hits the nerves a little bit just like getting into it and yeah having having a group of 20 other activists there that is really powerful it's like you're part of something you could like rest assured that they're there for you and um i think that's a big part as well and uh one final comment on what you said where like there's some people who just they try to troll you they're not serious it's not worth your energy but at the same time 
during the Cuba truth, like three teenager boys, they went by and like with KFC, they're like waving that in the personal the TV screen. And then one of the activists went up to them, two of them weren't open to it. One of those actually walked away, but the third one, he was actually brought to tears of like how horrible the animals are treated. And actually one of the activists got through to him. So yeah, be surprised at like some people like effective activism. That's somebody I want to interview on this channel of oh for sure more detailed on. So um, yeah, way, um, because yeah, right? sorry, just to add to that, I think some people <laughs> like they just they think they hate activists, whether it be animal activists or any kind of social justice activist, and they just want to spur you on, see get a reaction out of you. But it doesn't mean that they can't be moved by the message. So kudos to that that guy for actually. You absolutely know, moving him. so i don't want to take this on too long so is there any final messages you have for people or any places they could find you on social media or get involved yeah um yeah if you're interested in the kind of work we're doing um you can check us uh and our activism out through ban horse carriages niagara we're on instagram and facebook um it is a media outlet so we're not really a group we all just represent ourselves we're all just concerned citizens but all of our activism is documented on there um, if you want to check um, out uh, the ban horse carriage movement worldwide, you can go to partnership to ban horsecarriages.org, I believe, or .com, I'm sorry. Um, that, that lists uh, uh, several municipalities that have already banned it. Um, if you're looking to get involved and, and ban horse carriages in your city, just send us a direct message on Instagram and we can certainly help you out um, with ideas and um, maybe some tips. And if, if you're not interested in horse-run carriage um, activism um, per se, or if, you, if that's not in your community, but you wanna you know, advocate for something, again, you can reach out through Ban Horse Carriages Niagara for general tips um, on animal activism. We'd be happy to help because every, everything that you do reverberates and makes an impact. So even a small demonstration can really make a, um, an impact. Like even if you look at, the, how big the save movement is now. That started with one woman bearing witness outside of a, a Toronto slaughterhouse. And look how that's changed worldwide. You know, there's save movement, save chapters all over the world. So um, don't think that you as one individual can't make a difference. You definitely are changing the conversation by doing any kind of advocacy you're comfortable with, whether that's online or in the streets. Absolutely. And I mentioned before, like the reason I'm filming this documentary in this channel, like backtracks to like many years ago, one person made one post on social media with a fundraiser for a sheep and like it spiraled this whole effect. And I have at least 50 interviews so far. And um, it's one little thing caused all that. 